With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 45th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also love to provide listeners worldwide with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help you to better protect your privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, PodHoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And, of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, so then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Now, I really sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. And, you know, one of the things I look forward to each week is seeing all the countries and cities on my listeners report. This is a listeners report that comes just from those who are are listening through my website. I'm not sure about those other apps and so on. But through the website, it's really exciting for me to see where you are listening from. And in this past week, by far... The city with the largest number of listeners from any other city in the world by many hundreds is Dublin, Ireland. So thank you so much for listening, Dublin. I really appreciate it. Also, um, in this past week, I saw I had many new listeners in Latvia, Switzerland, and Italy, and in the U.S., in the cities of San Francisco and Charlotte, North Carolina, there were several additional hundred listeners who tuned in. So, right now, on my report, I see I have uh, close to 500 different cities in 60 countries around the globe listening now, and there are also, I was really tickled this past week to find out there are some university classes also tuning in as part of their class. So welcome, students. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in. If any of you are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please just get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, also just let me know. And Keep that feedback and those questions coming in. I just really do love getting all of it. So my December Privacy Professor Tips message was published on November 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2007. 
in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. You know, you can sign up really easy. Just go to privacyguidance.com and submit your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, here's my tip for the week, and it is based on some very recent uh, news. So Quora, Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Quora, where you can submit questions and people answer them and so on. Well, anyway, Quora discovered a massive breach of user data on November 30th of this year, 2018, that included around 100 million Quora users information. It included names, email addresses, IP addresses, um, user IDs, passwords, encrypted passwords, user account settings, their personalization data, public actions, content such as the questions they asked, the answers they gave, their comments, blog posts, and even their upvotes. Now, if you have Quora connected to your other social media accounts, such as Facebook, then that could also expand the exposure and the impact. Now, I've seen some folks out there say, oh, no, you don't have to worry about that. Well, I know enough about how technology works to know if you're linking sites together like that and with this massive breadth of information that was breached, Yes, there, there's a possibility there. So, um, and not just Facebook, for that matter, any type of account that you attach to any of your social media sites increases access to those accounts in some ways. So with the Quora breach, uh, the data that was breached is really so broad and it provides such deep insights into the people's lives about whom all of that data applies. So Quora announced the website would notify all affected users by email, and it would say that they would uh, reset their passwords. Now, I have a Quora account. I have not received such notification yet. So um, perhaps mine was, I don't use it much, so maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe mine didn't actually get breached. I still went ahead and changed the password, though. But You know, it reminded me of something when I heard about this. Many people use the exact same password for all of their online sites. So please, if you're doing this, please stop doing it. Do not use the same password for all your accounts. Now, even though the Quora passwords were encrypted... Depending upon the, the type of encryption used, and I did a quick check to see if I could figure that out, and, and it was very quick. I only spent a few minutes, but I did not see that they were using really strong encryption. I don't know what kind of encryption they're using, but keep in mind the cyber crooks who now may have copies of that hundred million pieces of data from all those different accounts, they might be able to use tools to decrypt them. If not now, then sooner or later. So what they'll do then is many of the crooks will try to use those same passwords for the other sites that those breached individuals, those 100 million folks that they use online. And it's often not hard to figure out 
what other sites those people use, especially with all that wide amount of information. So I'm going to do an upcoming show about how they do this. But for now, here's my tip. And I've, I've given this tip before, but it's worth repeating. Do not use the same passwords for your financial, retail, employer, healthcare, insurance, and other more sensitive sites as you use on your social media and other non-essential sites. If you used your core password elsewhere, then go to those sites and create new strong passwords for those accounts. Again, choose strong, complex passwords that are not the same as you use on Quora or any other social media or other non-essential site or accounts. So repeat, do not use the same password for all your sites. Use different passwords for financial sites, different from your healthcare, different from your employer, and so on. You need to make sure that you keep those separate. So to our show topic. So first I want to give a little background Uh, to kind of, you know, get into focus some of the concerns with what we're going to talk about today. So I've been working with HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, pretty much since it was enacted into law in the U.S. in 1996. And then the HIPAA Privacy Rule and Security Rule regulations started becoming enforced starting with the privacy rule in 2003, then the security rule in 2005. Now, among a few other exceptions, HIPAA allows for patient data to be used without consent if it is de-identified according to two possible methods. Now, probably the most well-known method is through a very simplistic activity, and that's by removing 18 specifically named data items from a data set or file. With the last and open type of data item, which is quite generally any type of information that can be linked to a specific individual. Now, the second de-identification method under HIPAA that they deem acceptable in theory is arguably more rigorous. It is if a person with what they call appropriate knowledge of expertise and experience with generally accepted statistical and scientific principles and methods for making information so it's no longer individually identifiable, if that type of expert would basically certify that the data met this type of unidentifiable requirement, then it could also be deemed as being de-identified. Now, in the last 15 or so years, I've seen many organizations choosing one or the other of these two HIPAA de-identification methods. Often they choose, well, whatever is determined to be the least expensive method, and they haven't really been concerned with how effective it was, but if it met compliance with HIPAA requirements, right? Too often, I've seen 
organizations take someone who either had a math degree at best, or I've actually seen this, and too many times I've seen this, they've had someone who has taken a math class in college or similar, and they've asked them to look at a data set and see if there is any way that they could determine and declare that it was unidentifiable, and then they would claim compliance with the second de-identification method. But consider this now. Just consider the timing. When these de-identification methods were established over 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, there were largely no publicly used big data analytics tools. There also were generally no sophisticated artificial intelligence tools available to business or other industries. Now, of course, many other industries outside of way beyond healthcare have also been trying to figure out over the past few decades how to identify at the least and oftentimes how to irreversibly anonymize at best personal data, personal data sets, files, and so on. Also consider this. Back then, 15 to 20 years ago, think about the computing power. Computing power was also significantly less powerful back then. What was acceptable to de-identify data 20 years ago to be unidentifiable in that time period really is no longer sufficient. I mean, truly, when you look at the current capabilities of big data analytics, artificial intelligence, grid computing, and and ubiquitous computing, anonymizing personal data becomes much more difficult. Some even question whether or not it is even now possible to anonymize personal data. So what is possible with regard to de-identification and anonymization? And will it be sufficient only for today? Or will what is used today last and keep that data anonymized for decades to come or possibly beyond? Well, I'm really happy for the opportunity to speak with a world-renowned de-identification and anonymization expert for this topic. Today, I'm being joined by Dr. Khalid Elimam, who is the founder and president of Privacy Analytics, an IQVIA company. Khalid helped to found five companies involved with data management and data analytics. Khalid has worked in technical and management positions in academic and business settings in England, Scotland, Germany, Japan, and Canada. Khalid is also a senior scientist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute and director of the Electronic Health Information Laboratory conducting academic research on de-identification and re-identification risk measurement. Khalid previously held the Canada Research Chair in Electronic Health Information at the University of Ottawa, and he's a professor in the Faculty of Medicine and Pediatrics 
at the university. Khalid has a PhD from the Department of Electrical and Electronics Engineering from King's College at the University of London, England. Khalid, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. My pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Well, this is such an important topic, I think, for so many organizations, probably a growing number of organizations. Could you please provide for our listeners maybe a high-level description of the various types of anonymization and de-identification that, you know, are available out there today? Uh, Absolutely. I think... um before doing that, I'd like to start by explaining why you would want to de-identify or anonymize uh, information. Um, as you mentioned, my, my background is, is in healthcare, so I'll use health examples um, to, to make the point. Um, so under uh, statutes, and this is pretty much the case globally, and you mentioned HIPAA earlier on, um, if you want to uh, use uh, information for secondary purposes, so for example, to do this big data analytics, to do um, health research, um, to use it in uh, various types of you know, drug development uh, uh, research, um, you uh, either have to get the uh, consent of the patients or you can de-identify it and use it for, for those uh, secondary purposes. Um, and in practice, you know, when you have these large databases, um, it's, all, it's not always um, practical or possible to go back and re-consent a very large number of individuals. So um, the, the statutes around the world allow you to de-identify that data so you can no longer assign a person's identity to to the records in that data, um, and then use it for for uh, these research purposes or, or analytics uh, purposes. Um, so it basically facilitates research, it facilitates analysis uh, in a way that that's practical. Um, mm-hmm. The terms uh, de-identification and anonymization um, are used. Um, Sometimes interchangeably in different parts of the world. Uh, sometimes they mean the same thing. Sometimes they mean slightly different things. So in general, I like to talk about the risk of re-identification, so how easy it is to re-identify individuals. And um, that risk is um, on a spectrum. It's not uh, easy or hard. It's not binary. It's on a spectrum. So, uh, you know, if you think of it as a value between... I don't know, one in a hundred, a hundred being uh, very easy and one being uh, very, very difficult, then then the ease of identification or the risk of identification is essentially, you know, a value on on that spectrum, on on that scale. So you want to make it as low as possible. But the the flip side is if you make it too low, then uh, if you make it very hard to identify individuals, you also make it make the data less useful because it means you have to change the data a lot. Uh, you have to add noise. You have to, uh, for example, uh, generalize dates of birth to 10-year, 20-year, 30-year intervals. Um, mm-hmm. So the data loses granularity and uses uh, utility. So it's really a balancing act between uh, ensuring that you... Uh, reduce the identifiability enough, but not too much, so that uh, the data is still useful and you can do this analysis and research um, with that data. Um, so as you uh, mentioned earlier on under HIPAA, there are two standards, and I think these two standards pretty much reflect what's happening globally 
in terms of approaches for for uh, anonymizing or, or de-identifying data. Um, the the safe harbor uh, standard has been copied in many places by many organizations, um, and the expert determination method has also been copied uh, and uh, applied in, in, in many jurisdictions around the world. Um, so these are generally the two approaches that, that have been used um, for many years. There are new approaches that are uh, being developed. Uh, they're interesting. They're exciting. They're not deployed or used broadly, so I, I won't talk about them too much. Um, and I'll focus mostly about what has been deployed, what's being used practically, practically today to, to de-identify or to anonymize uh, data today and that's being shared and that's being uh, you know, used for, for, for these secondary purposes. Um, mm-hmm. And just on this point, uh, this, I'll add one more detail and then I'll let you, I'll let you ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's also important to make a distinction, and you, you made the point earlier on, uh, about public data and, and non-public data. So when you share public data, um, it is a completely different animal uh, because when data is out there, it's shared publicly, it's, it's put on the Internet, anyone can access it, there are absolutely no controls on what happens to that data. So typically when you um, prepare and de-identify data for public release, um, you, you move the, the, the bar or the scale closer to one. You, you, you de-identify or, or reduce the, the, the risk of reidentification even more um, because, uh, as you said, once the data is out there, it's out there forever. It's, hard to, it's impossible to bring back. Um, so there are really strong constraints on public data. As a practical matter, you really shouldn't be re- releasing or sharing detailed information um, I mean, personal information has been de-identified, uh, but shouldn't be detailed um, mm-hmm. because that makes it easier to identify individuals. And you want to set the threshold for for this this risk uh, to to a lower number, um, so you can have a, a lot of contingency there, a lot of buffer room for these technological developments that can potentially happen in the future. Um, on the other hand, you have non-public data sharing that's happening. So this is data, for example, that's shared with academics to do research, data shared with, with uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies to, to develop new drugs and new treatments. Um, and when data is shared non-publicly, um, you can impose controls. So, for mm-hmm. example, you can tell the researcher, I'm going to give you the data, I'm going to perturb it or de-identify it to, to some extent, but also I expect you to have all of these security and privacy controls in place. So it's not just about the data, it's about all the controls you impose on, on this researcher, on this academic who's getting the data. Uh, and that's really important because uh, you have to approach uh, the identification or anonymization as a risk management exercise where mm-hmm. you, you have multiple levers to manage the risk. One lever is to modify the data to make it harder to identify individuals. Another lever is you can impose security controls and privacy controls on this academic or the data recipient. So you require them to implement a series of security and privacy controls to manage the data um, and have appropriate governance mechanisms around, around the handling of that data. And you can have contractual controls as well. So you can have contracts and agreements with, with this researcher prohibiting re-identification, limits on linking it. Um, 
and uh, uh, limits on sharing it with third parties and so on, audit requirements, etc. So you can have multiple controls to manage the risk in addition to perturbing the data when it's not publicly released. Uh, in some jurisdictions, such as the UK, it's a criminal offense to re-identify data. So, so there are stronger uh, consequences in certain jurisdictions for re-identification. But you can certainly do a lot through the contracts and data sharing agreements that you put in place. So, so it's important to make the distinction when, when um, talking about the identification or anonymization about whether you're, you're uh, um, talk about recovering public data releases versus non-public data releases. For public, they're, they're riskier, so you identify more, you perturb more, uh, you don't have as many levers to manage the risk. For non-public data, you have uh, more levers to manage the risk, so, so you can uh, release higher quality data, uh, you don't have to perturb them as much, but you can impose stronger controls uh, to to manage the risk of something bad happening when when that academic gets gets access to that data. So that's a now, high level overview of the, of the world of the identification. I would I do want to ask you to clarify one thing because while we have a, a great number of our listeners who do come from a tech background, a lot of them are listening to learn more about you know just general risks, security and privacy risks in the world. So when you you use the term perturb, so can you maybe uh, explain what you mean by that for those in the audience who might not be familiar with that term? Sure, absolutely. Um, so perturb means you, you transform your your data. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, if you have a date of birth, uh, you can uh, generalize that to a year of birth or to a five-year interval, five-year range, or a 10-year range um, uh, of, for age, for example. Um, if you have a date of an event, uh, such as a hospital admission, you can add noise to that. So you can say plus or minus, I don't know, 15 days, for example. So, so then the, the date of admission to, to a hospital, in this case, would be plus or minus, uh, uh, randomly, plus or minus 15 days. Um, if you have a location, uh, you can uh, move, let's say, the, the, the individual's uh, residential zip code uh, or postal code, uh, you, can, you can move them to an adjacent zip code. So uh, it could be an adjacent zip code with similar characteristics, socioeconomic status, etc., uh, but it's not the same one. So essentially adding noise to the location and moving them to a different location that, that uh, has the same characteristics as the original location and that it's somewhat close. And somewhat close, okay. of course, has to be defined. So, right. so you, keep, you add noise, you make changes to the data so that it's harder to, to identify individuals. Yeah. So in, in everyday language, it, that would be kind of like if you ask someone how old they were, instead of saying, you know, 36, they might say, I'm in my 30s. So that way they just give you a general idea, but it's not giving you the actual value. That's kind of the same thing, right? That's a per- perfect it, example, yes. Okay. You know, we have a break that it's time for already, and I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you after the break about some very specifics uh, about anonymization and de-identification and risk of re-identification. But right now, it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors, who I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Dr. Khalid Elimam about anonymization. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions, using my email, Rebecca. 
Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com and through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Dr. Khalid Elimam, founder and president of Privacy Analytics, and we've been discussing anonymization and de-identification. So, uh, Khalid, I met you through you know, HIPAA compliance activities and communications really many years ago before a lot of organizations even knew about, let alone use such things as big data analytics or artificial intelligence. And I, you know, I mentioned the two and you mentioned the two options under HIPAA for de-identification, which was either taking specific data items out of a data set or having a statistician say, you know, the chances are low that data can be re-identified. How is the effectiveness of, let's start with just that very, what I call a simplistic method of just removing those specifically named items from data sets to de-identify them. How has the effect of a effectiveness of that actually changed. I would think it's changed from, you know, 15 years ago to the way that we have tools available through big data analytics today. What are you seeing? Uh, You're you're absolutely right. Um, I think that um, 
This is a, a cookie-cutter uh, cookie type standard. It's very simple. It's very easy to implement. Um, it makes sense under some very limited circumstances for certain types of data, but as the complexity of uh, data increases, um, its ability to, to protect, to be protective and protect the identifiability of individuals and patients um, is, is becoming very limited. Um, I would say it's, it's really not a very good standard. Um, maybe when it was initially put in place, it was, but today it, it's, it's not a good standard uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, is it's uh, not going to be protective of identifiability for, for many, many different types of data sets. Um, but also um, some of the, the changes that you have to do to meet safe harbor um, uh, reduce the value of data significantly. So, for example, you can't have any dates with more granularity than a year, which which really limits the, the type of analysis you can do with, with health data if you don't know mm-hmm. what events occurred before what other events. Um, so so it's, it, you get a hit on both sides. That it's not really that protective, and your your data quality may not be that great either. Um, and then... Uh, for from a global perspective, um, you know a lot of uh, countries and organizations globally have copied uh, the HIPAA Safe Harbor standard, and uh, you know in in the U.S. Um, uh, uh, the Safe Harbor standard is is in HIPAA, and if you comply, you can check the box, and you, irrespective of how good it is, you can argue that you're compliant. But if you copy it in other jurisdictions, it's not it's not the law or the regulation in other countries. So. Um, you can't make that argument that I'm, I'm complying and I'm checking the box. You, you, you have to use a standard that is actually protective, and I think you'll have a very hard time arguing that the safe harbor standard is protective to any regulator uh, in, in countries around the world. Um, so, uh, I mean, the other obvious question is, is, is it going to remain, and is, is there a plan by OCR to, to retire uh, safe harbor? Um, I haven't heard that that's going to be the case, and I haven't heard that there's a plan to do so. Um, so it's probably going to stay with us for a while, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, there's a general um, acceptance and understanding that, that it's, it's, it's not a good standard. We, we should do something about it. It's hard to know whether something will be done about it. You know, one of the things that worries me about it, too, you, you talked before the break about the need to control and to have not only actual uh, technical controls around the use of the data sets, but also contractual controls. But, you know, I'm finding a lot of organizations that contact me or I meet at conferences or whatever, they talk about, well, we have a de-identified data set and we're going to just do analysis using that data plus data that we bring in from other places, such as online or public um, locations. And that worries me because adding, from your viewpoint, doesn't that um, increase the risk of re-identification when you start introducing other data sets into the mix of a de-identified data set? Right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And if a data set is pro- properly de-identified, you shouldn't really be able to link it with anything else. So the fact that you're able mm-hmm. to link it means that the de-identification has some weak points. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, so definitely the more the more data sets you're able to bring together, you, you, you get uh, more of a, a detailed profile about the individuals. Uh, you know, for health data, you get a better understanding of, of their journey, which is great for research, but it does increase the risk of re-identification. 
um, and Safe Harbor can't handle complex data sets like that. So if you have a mm-hmm. you know, complex data uh, data set, an EHR data set, or if you have uh, linked data sets w- which cover multiple domains, you know, pharmacy, clinic, hospital, lab, etc., um, Safe Harbor will not provide any meaningful protection. It's it's not mm-hmm. it's very easy to identify that kind of data um, where where they have uh, been been uh, identified using the Safe Harbor standard. Now. Talking about standards, you know, when we're talking about the safe harbor as it applies to HIPAA, that's the removal of those 18 specific data items. But there's a, a many other types of standards that have been emerging over the years, right? Um, it, what are your opinions about all the different types of de-identification standards that are out there right now? Is there any one that you see that you think is the best or the most effective for preventing re-identification? Um, so, so, I mean, the expert determination standard under HIPAA is, is the one that uh, I would definitely recommend. Um, it, it relies on statistical methods to uh, measure the risk of re-identification. Mm-hmm. There's a large body of work, uh, maybe 40 or 50 years of, of literature and research on how to measure the risk of re-identification. So um, the expert determination method would, um, the, whoever applies it, would, would be expected to, to draw from that work and apply statistical methods to, to assess the risk and, um, uh, and then apply these transformations or perturbations to, to uh, reduce the risk in, uh, in the data and put in controls, et cetera. Um, in terms of actual, uh, so, so the, the expert determination standard in HIPAA is, is, is high level. Uh, there are standards that have been developed that are much more operational um, mm-hmm. that essentially follow the expert determination approach. Um, and, uh, you know, in the health sector, the Institute of Medicine has published uh, some some material on what uh, well, they're now, they're called the National Academies of Medicine. Um, they uh, they have published a guideline uh, for sharing clinical trial data, which has uh, a good uh, description of how to de-identify that kind of data. Uh, the European Medicines Agency has published guidelines for the identification of uh, of clinical trial data as well. Um, and then, uh, in terms of uh, uh, standards or, or certifications, the High Trust Alliance. Um, uh, which is a U.S.-based standards organization, um, uh, which has members in, uh, from various industries, health health industries. Um, they've developed a identification framework, uh, which again draws from the expert determination uh, uh, standard in HIPAA, um, and so their framework is, uh, operationalizes that, uh, describes all the controls you have to put in place, and so on. And they also have a training program and a certification program for individuals. So um, they are they are not for profit. Um, they're they're better known for their security certification programs, so they certify mm-hmm. organizations on their security practices. So they have a de-identification certification program as well. Um, so if you take the course and take the exam and pass, then then you you have um, a qualification to to demonstrate that if you de- you've developed some knowledge around uh, good de-identification practices. And so um, and that they, would be. Other- well, I was going to say, would that meet then the statistical method under HIPAA, that type of certification, if you had that? It'll, it'll uh, take you a, a, a long way, you know, to get there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll take you uh, 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 far in, in terms of achieving that, that, that qualification, yes. Um, okay. 
to, to be an expert, you have to have training and application. So High Trust will, will give you the training piece. And then you right. have to apply it and gain expertise as well in practice. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I've got a math degree, and I feel like I would still need a whole lot of additional training to be able to be uh, to feel comfortable statistically validating anything that had been anonymized. So I think it would be something that you would need some some good uh, background and experience in for sure. Um, you know, before before we get too much further, I want to get into your clinical trials and your disease surveillance, because you've done so much with de-identification and, and looking at the risk of re-identification for those different purposes. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand why that type of data is needed. So could you maybe describe the type of data that's used or needed for clinical trials and and how it's important for disease surveillance to be able to do de-identification to use that? Oh, absolutely. So, um, I mean, let let, let me talk about clinical trials uh, first. Um, So, uh, Many organizations conduct clinical trials. You have the pharmaceutical industry, which, which runs clinical trials to, to uh, evaluate the new treatments and new drugs. And you also have academic medical centers who run clinical trials uh, to evaluate treatments uh, that, that they come up with. Um, so there, there, there's a lot of clinical trial uh, data out there. Um, recently, there's been a strong transparency movement. Um, and what that means is uh, there's a strong desire by patients, by uh, regulators, by uh, uh, civic groups to uh, make that clinical trial data more available for secondary analysis. And this applies to the academic trials and the, the pharmaceutical company trials. Um, and so this has actually started to happen. So over the last two or three years, um, the pharmaceutical industry has invested um, some effort in making their clinical trial data sets available for researchers. Um, and uh, thousands of data sets are now available for, from clinical trials that have been conducted in the past um, for researchers to, to, to access them, download them, and, and do some initial, uh, additional analysis on that data. And so really innovative studies have been done. Uh, on, on these uh, clinical trial data sets uh, that, that are being reused now. Um, and this is very advantageous for patients as well. I mean, when, when you talk to patients, they participate, participate in a trial. When you participate in a trial, there, there's no guarantee that, that um, you, you will benefit. Uh, you may get the control arm or the placebo arm uh, of the trial, um, or the treatment may not work as well. Um, but those individuals uh, provide their time. They, they participate in these trials. They, they do take some risk, and they want that data to be utilized as much as possible to increase knowledge, to increase learning, to be used to, to help develop new treatments. Um, so there's, there's a desire by the patients who, who um, participate in the trials to, to maximize the value of that data. And by sharing it in this way, uh, the value of that data can be maximized, and that has started to happen. So um, there's been uh, a number of guidelines and standards, uh, again, following expert determination, essentially, um, by, as I mentioned, Institute of Medicine, by the European Medicines Agency, and by some other professional groups and associations, um, and industry groups as well, uh, developed guidelines and best practices around the identification of clinical trial data, um, mm-hmm. for uh, uh, public release and for controlled release, your non-public release. 
Um, and this has actually worked quite well. It's increasing. As I mentioned, thousands of trials are available. Hundreds have been shared with researchers already. And we're starting to see publications and um, uh, interesting analyses being done uh, from, from that data. So I think that's been a very successful effort. Um, the industry has been, pharma industry has been leading this, this transpa- transparency movement, and academic uh, medical centers are now uh, following to uh, make their data sets more broadly available as well. So the whole community mm-hmm. is, is moving in that direction. But those data sets, um, again, are anonymized, right? I mean, have you looked at the risk levels for the, the potential for re-identification within those? Yeah, so we, we have done a few um, studies recently. Um, so I'll mention, I'll mention one uh, where we, um, uh, we anonymized a data set, a clinical trial data set, and then a third party, a different organization, was hired um, to attack that data and try to re-identify the patients to test whether the, the identification worked well or not. Um, mm-hmm. And none of the patients were re-identified. Um, so this, this was a clinical trial. It was, um, uh, it was a global trial, but the focus of the re-identification attack was the U.S. patients. Um, so there were 500 patients in, in, who participated in this trial from the U.S., and uh, the, the experiment was to see uh, empirically how easy it was to re-identify the patients, and not a single person was, was re-identified successfully. So we're starting to accumulate data and evidence that uh, contemporary re-identification uh, methods uh, work reasonably well, and they are protective. Um, and also, of course, they allow us to share this data and, and make it available for the secondary research as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as you describe that, it just kind of occurred to me that that should almost be part of the procedure for validating uh, data before it's released, right? Maybe have someone come in and do that type of, of re-identification attack, if you will, just to ensure and to provide some sort of assurances that we've, we, you know, it is anonymized to an acceptable level because we had somebody try it out. Kind of like, you know, on systems and networks, we do penetration testing to kind of determine that same type of assurance. I mean, is that something that's maybe already being considered to do those types of uh, validations before the data is kind of released more widely? That's the best practice. And we're certainly mm-hmm. encouraging organizations to do that. Um, you, I mean, you wouldn't do it for every single data that you share, but you do it for a subset or a sampling to, to test mm-hmm. whether the methodology that you're using works well for the different types of data sets that you test. And then to repeat it on a regular basis to, to see if uh, the environment has changed, computing power has changed, the data available has changed, um, and, and whether your, your identification approach um, is still protective against uh, the, these changes in the environment. So definitely, it's a recommended thing to do, and, and uh, there are protocols for how to do this well and, and do it responsibly. Um, ah. So it should, should happen, yeah. Oh, that's great. So it's good to hear that there's, you know, protocols for that. And one of the other things I've heard a lot of people express a lot of concern about with this type of data is for um, next generations. So as an example, last year I got for a um, holiday gift, I had a I got a genetic DNA testing kit. And I was concerned, so I was checking out privacy, but when I decided to 
go ahead and do it, my son, one of my sons said, don't do that. And I thought, you know, he was concerned about me and my privacy. But no, he said, I don't want people finding out about me (laughs) because you're putting your DNA out there. So, you know, I thought, well, that's a really sharp insight. Uh, How about any concerns for next generations for this anonymized data and potentially, you know, how it could be used? Or is that something that hasn't really been looked at very closely yet? Well, I mean, I think it depends. Um, If if you uh, are trying to share genomic data for for research purposes, there are good ways to do that um, Mm -hmm. and and be protective of, of individuals. Um, if you're putting your your uh, uh, test results uh, uh, online in in a you know a website to, to allow you to, to to look at your identify your ancestors and so on, um, that's a big risk, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, people still want to do this, and and they still want to take the risk. And of course, as long as they're informed of the risks, that's that's their decision. Um, but uh, from a research perspective where, where you're really trying to access data on a large number of people, um, there are good ways to, to do this in a privacy-protective way. Um, and it's not de-identification. In that case, you can't really de-identify genomic data. Um, mm-hmm. The techniques that That's are emerging true. to allow you to do this are, are called secure computation. So mm-hmm. they're more cri- advanced cryptographic techniques that allow you to do analysis on, on uh, genomic data. Um, and they're quite secure, and they still... Um, allow researchers and analysts to uh, uh, derive the appropriate insights or derive insights from analyzing that data. Um, so that, there are ways to solve that problem as well. But if you post so, it online, and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's a different story. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's you putting it out there, not uh, somebody else that maybe you had trusted not to share. But what should people do then when they go to their healthcare providers or when someone asks them if they can use their health data, uh, if they can get their consent to use it for trials or uh, for like what you talked about for disease surveillance? Are there questions that people should be asking to help ensure that, that their data is truly being anonymized or being protected appropriately? Um, I mean, I, th- I think that... Um you, sh- you should be informed. Patients should be informed if their data is uh, is being uh, shared externally outside the clinic or or used for research, uh, and and that notice that can be a notice, posters or or leaflets that are given to the patients when when they uh, register, letting them know that the data will be de-identified and and shared for research. And we have a research ethics committee or board that will review these these uh, studies and approve them and so on. To give patients an underst- just a general understanding of um, what protocols are in place to to uh, make use of this data, which which can be very beneficial, but do it in a responsible way. Um, mm-hmm. And if you um, if you don't see a notice, you can ask. Um, and if in the notice there's very little information, then um, I'd, I'd ask a lot more questions because uh, you want right. to know. If there's mention of the identification, if there's mention of a privacy officer, if there's mention of an ethics review, all these all these would be uh, you know good signs that various important things are in place. Um, so so that's that's how I, how I would um, expect things to be done in practice. 
And, you know, um, you've written three books, at least three books, probably more than that, on de-identification and anonymization. And I I had the great honor of contributing to one of your books. Um, Well, it's been several years ago now, I think. But uh, is there anything that has surprised you over the years about what you've discovered through all of your research into de-identification and anonymization? Um, with regard to maybe how easy it is to re-identify or on the flip side, maybe finding a method that's like, wow, this works really well to, to help keep data um, de- or de-identified. Um, well, we, we know how to do I mean, We as a community know how to de-identify data well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's a balancing act. You don't want to go too far and produce data that's been uh, transformed or perturbed so much that it's useless. There's a lot of mm-hmm. value comes from analyzing data. So, so it's a balancing act between ensuring the data is still useful, but it's still, uh, it, it protects uh, the identifiability of, of individuals. So there are good standards, there are good best practices, um, there are good protocols for de-identification that exist today. They work. We do re-identification attacks, as I mentioned, on a regular basis to test these protocols. Uh, ours and other people's, and uh, if you use these best practices, they work reasonably well. The risk is never zero, and this is really mm-hmm. important for, for everyone to understand. The risk is never zero. Um, mm-hmm. It can be low, but it's never going to be zero. If you want zero risk, then you shouldn't be using data at all. Um, right. If you want to use data and gain the value and the benefits uh, in terms of treatments, new drugs, new discoveries from analyzing and reusing that data, there's going to be some risk. Um, but if you use good protocols and good practices, the risk can be very low, and so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good balance in terms of benefit and risk. What has surprised me is how long it's taken uh, organizations to adopt these good practices. Um, we're still seeing a lot of organizations that have um, practices that uh, should, should not be used or, or that, that are uh, quite simple. Um, mm-hmm. It has gotten better over the years, but there's still there's still a long way to go. So the adoption has been quite slow. Um, there's a lot more interest in data and reusing data, so that's happening very fast. But the adoption of good practices around data identification and anonymization has been slower. So um, we're we're encouraging uh, organizations like HiTrust, for example, to uh, 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 increase the profile, train more people to do the identification, in, in, uh, enlarge the ecosystem of, uh, of individuals with the expertise who, who can uh, make it easier for, for organizations to identify their data responsibly. So we're making progress, but I, I think there's, there's still some way to go. Well, for our last takeaway, we're almost at the very end here. But, you know, um, for the last takeaway, why don't you let folks, our listeners, know uh, the titles of your books uh, that are still out there that they can look for if they want to see more about this? Uh, Absolutely. Um, There's a a theory book for those who are... um, mathematically inclined, called uh, a guide to the identification of health information, personal health information. Um, and then there's an applied book, um, which describes uh, case studies and gives examples of uh, health data, uh, most it's health data, uh, anonymization, different types of health data. It's called Anonymizing Health Data. Um, and uh, the third book is a policy and uh, a legal book, which is an edited book 
um, and uh, it, it contains contributions from, from many authors. Um, and that's based on a newsletter that we used to publish called Risky Business. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the title of the book. It's the Risky Business uh, uh, book, basically. Um, so these are the three three books uh, specifically on, on this topic that have been published um, three or four years ago now. Great. I will uh, include those into the information in the show, or at least a pointer to them. So thank you so much for being my guest today, Khaled. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So today I've been speaking with Dr. Khaled Elimam, founder and president of Privacy Analytics about anonymization. If any of you have questions, comments, or want to provide me with your show topic ideas, just send me a note to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge all of you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for, or the healthcare providers that you give your health data to if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Thank you.